In a perfect friendship, each member of the circle feels in his secret heart humbled before all the rest. Sometimes he wonders what he is doing there among his betters. He is lucky beyond dessert to be in such company, especially when the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, or funniest in all the others. Those are the golden sessions. When four or five of us, after a hard day's walking, have come to our inn, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, and our drinks at our elbows, when the whole world, and something beyond the world, opens itself to our minds as we talk, while at the same time an affection mellowed by the years enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. Who could have deserved it? This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 14. The Four Loves, Chapter 3, Friendship, Part 2. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. So, how is everybody doing today? How was your birthday, Andrew? Well, it was a little low birthday. Um, uh, family, a lot of families out of town. Kristen wasn't feeling well, so we just kind of uh, stayed in and uh, I took naps and got a little bit of work done. Um, it's still a pressure season. I've got a paper that I'm finishing up tonight and, uh, my priestly exams next week. So, um, but we're, uh, we'll, we'll find a way to celebrate my birthday and it can be a movable feast. How about you, Matt? Are you feeling any better? <laughs> yes. Listeners, Matt got hit with the COVID and I am a survivor and I am all antibodied up now. Dun, dun, and it's dun, lovely. Dun. It was... It was a rough two days. It was more or less a fever, chills, body aches, all that stuff. So I was pretty much, since we last chatted, I was out. And then even yesterday when I was starting to feel better, you're still just really tired. And today is day four after it. And I still have congestion and a little bit of fatigue. But overall, I'm feeling quite good. But I was thinking the timing of this felt very satanic. And I don't mean to spiritualize this. I had just after months of telling myself to do this. I had read Atomic Habits. I had read Habits of Holiness. I had gone to that retreat I told you guys about the rule of life many, 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 many months ago. And I told myself, I want to create this entire like rule of life day thing. I finally finish it Sunday. Monday, I'm going to start executing morning routine, evening routine, all this stuff, bad habits, good habits. And I wake up Monday morning just smacked with this and it kills mm -hmm. It literally killed all of the potential for the good habits because you have no willpower. And it threw in my bad habits. Like one thing was just to completely, I want to rid completely of TV. Well, when you're in a COVID world, you're just going to watch TV because you just don't want to do anything. So I was literally like, this is not a coincidence that the day that I wake up after getting this going and I'm all excited to, to implement this plan, this hit. So, you know, I'm not going to let him win though. <laughs> no, I think this just is a nice counterpoint to having a spiritual plan because not everything goes according to plan. And sometimes you have to give yourself a little bit of grace. Yes. And imitate our Lord who gives us grace constantly. You know, Lewis here also has some advice. He always wanted to be sick enough that he couldn't go to work, but not so sick that he couldn't read. And so 
maybe having a stack of really easy, funny, um, I think that maybe the um, Jeeves and Wooster books, the P.G. Woodhouse books might be excellent, oh, yeah. um, although they're a little too clever sometimes for me. I have to concentrate. <laughs> but maybe some light reading or light rereading of books that you enjoy. Um, that might be good to have as a stack by the bed for when you're feeling so sick. Well, that was my problem. I'm reading Genghis Khan, The Making of the Modern World. Phenomenal book. Absolutely phenomenal book. A little bit heady for when you are fully congested with a headache and body ache and chills. And so you're right. I should have been more strategic. And rather than watching all eight Harry Potter movies over 48 hours, I should have read the books. Yeah. Or read just uh, just your favorite books. I often tell people when you reread, just skipping to the bits that you like counts as rereading because nobody's counting. Um, <laughs> another bit of rereading that I like to do, I gather um, all of the books that I read as a child and as a young boy that I loved, and I reread them to see if they hold up. And some of them do, and some of them don't. Um, but uh, there are that's another thing I learned from Lewis, that there are all kind of different kinds of reading. He talks about certain books being good for certain parts of the day or certain seasons of life and certain moods. And so uh, there's always something good to read. Well, I don't have a whole lot of life updates. We're just doing Christmas and you know sitting around eating and drinking. Uh, but I did want to say that in the last episode, we were speaking about how love can change over time. And appropriately enough, we had this iTunes review come from Canada. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I have to say that this is the best I've heard. I have recently been ordained as a permanent deacon, and I intend to be working him into my homilies. I particularly like having discovered the podcast a couple of years in, so that I can binge like mad. And it's fun to hear David mention Marie for the first time and think, you're going to marry her, and you don't <laughs> even know it. <laughs> Thanks for the joy and enthusiasm you've brought to my day. <laughs> Well, and I love uh, how they say they're going to be a permanent deacon and work Lewis into the, the homilies. It sounds like there's going to be another church with a drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me apply some of my Batesian rigidity and move us on to the <laughs> beverage and the toast. We can't What's leave, everyone drinking today? We can't leave the listeners uh, uh, without Batesian rigidity because that's going to become an inside joke that I want to be repeating. I love it. <laughs> so the quote that I originally had was a little bit longer. I edited out some bits um, from it. It was half the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an excellent chapter. How could you resist? Um, uh, it was. It, it's like Lewis said of Tolkien one night. He said, "I, you know, I, Tolkien was here until 3 a.m., but who could turn him out? The fire was bright and the talk was – or he says, the t fire was bright and the talk was good. Who could turn him out? Um, so I did chop it down, but I did uh, chap David a little bit for his Batesian rigidity in keeping us moving along. But listeners, if you like the pace, especially this season, you can thank David for his uh, his indomitable efforts to uh, to keep us on schedule. Speaking of which, what is everybody drinking? <laughs> well, I'm still out of scotch. Um, I'll be going next week back to Alexandria, where I have my gift card from one of our su supporters. So I'll get some more scotch there. But uh, I do have some Guinness in the um, in the fridge. So I am drinking a lovely pint of Guinness. What about you, Matt? I am just drinking tea because I don't want to risk the fact that I'm almost fully healthy so that I can maybe celebrate New Year's Eve. So tea for me. When you've kept some of the scotches that you sent me, you'd have plenty to disinfect your throat with. <laughs> Speaking of which. I washed the baseboards. <laughs> I damaged the varnish too much. Uh, I am drinking Inch Murrin. Never heard of that before. 
Uh, but uh, it's a Loch Lomond whiskey. Another one Matt sent? Yes. <laughs> you know, props to you for just continuing trudging through it all. Help me. I'm scared. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, would you mind uh, toasting a new top tier sporter who's started supporting us today, but wish to remain anonymous? Yes. Well, uh, to the nameless and the the, the faithful uh, who reminds us that our, our good deeds should be done in secret and that our Heavenly Father who sees in secret will, will reward us. So we thank you for your faithfulness to us and your faithfulness to the Lord. And so we say to you, cheers. 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 <laughs> Andrew, you're so good at those. Yeah, it's a gift. I don't like to talk about it much. <laughs> oh, I do want to give a quick update. The Inklings Variety Hour, I think six months ago, had me on at the beginning of Till We Have Faces. And tonight is their last night. And so Christopher Pipkin, Chris Pipkin has invited me back on. So I think nine or 10 o'clock tonight, I'll be going on with them. Um, of course, listeners, by the time you hear this, it'll be over. But uh, but we're looking at the very end of book, uh, book two. And uh, I'm finishing up a paper about Lewis's autobiography and looking at Till We Have Faces uh, and finishing that and getting that sent off tonight too. So, um, but on to, away from my recap and summary and on to the recap and summary of the book. David, take it away. Yeah. So, so far in The Four Loves, in chapter one, Lewis taught us the key pieces of vocabulary that he was going to use to analyze the different kinds of loves. And it was there that he introduced his central concept that love, when it becomes a god, becomes a demon. Then in chapter two, we examined love for subpersonal objects such as nature and country. And in chapter three, we were introduced to affection, or storgi in Greek, which loves the familiar. But it goes bad if we become entitled or obnoxious, or we allow it to become ravenous, or when we try to hang on to it by keeping others dependent upon us. And then last week, we began chapter four and our discussion of friendship, or philia in Greek. And we discovered that this love has rather fallen out of favor with moderns due to their lack of experience of real friendship, as well as their attitudes towards the animal and the biological. And Lewis distinguished friendship from both eros and companionship, and he explained why friendships don't really have survival value. And he also refuted the idea that friendship is just concealed sexuality. And he also told us why friendship is the, the least jealous of loves. And he ended that section with a thought experiment about what you would do if you were given the option of retaining with your spouse either philia or eros. And the difficulty of the decision demonstrates very clearly how important a love philia really is. Now, we've got a lot to get through. <laughs> so is there anything crucial that you think our listeners need to hear before we move on? I'm being extra Batesian rigidity today. <laughs> well, I have a small dissertation that I wanted to talk about in terms of now. Um, but I do want to mention that uh, it, it behooves us to pay attention to the context. Remember that this is Lewis developing friendships in the 1920s um, and the 19-teens. A lot of these begin in his teen years um, and in the war. And then his experience of real friendship happens in the 1930s. And so we are nearly a century away. And here in America, we're an ocean away from the culture and the time in which he talked about some of those things. So I think that some of these things don't necessarily age as well as others, um, but it's worth uh, looking at it in the context that, uh, that Lewis was speaking from. Andrew prepping us for some of the tougher sections. 
<laughs> always context, always chronology. That's what I say. <laughs> How about a summary for what we're going to talk about today, David? Okay, here's my summary for the second part of chapter four. Is friendship unnecessary? While some might argue that it benefits society, Jack shows that it is a double-edged sword, sometimes benefiting, sometimes hurting the community. He distinguishes between friendship and allyship, saying that while friends will be allies, this is not the heart of friendship. Jack then argues that friendship is uninquisitive, but that it is through the matrix of friendship that friends learn about each other. He ends by exploring the possibility of friendship between the sexes. While he says it can exist, he notes that when it is forced, the results can be disastrous. So Jack begins the text for today by expanding on what he said earlier about the unnecessary character of friendship. And he starts by saying that one could argue that friendship really does have practical value to society. And in support of this, he points to a list of movements and areas of study which began just simply among a small knot of friends. And the examples he gives are religion, mathematics, romanticism, science. That's what he's referring to when he talks about the Royal Society. And he adds many more to the list. Communism, Tractarianism, Methodism, the movement against slavery, the Reformation, and the Renaissance. But gentlemen, what is the problem with this kind of argument? It's a double-edged sword. Not every one of those could be seen as good things. So essentially, yes, friendship creates these movements or these uh, communities or these organizations, but it's not necessarily a given that they fall as a positive to society. Some might look at some and say they're negative. Some might look at some and say they're positive. Well, and I think about what he says, the romantic movement was once was Mr. Wordsworth and Mr. Coleridge talking incessantly about this, a secret vision of their own. And so I always think of friendships as a love and as one that's that's kind of pointing towards a love, a love of something else, a love that kind of takes us out of ourselves. And yeah, like, like Matt said, it can be a double-edged sword. I mean, communism starts this way, but communism starts out of a common interest in social mores and and the plight of the poor. And so once again, love is, is screw tapes always out there and love can, he will turn anything that looks like love into um, a complex form of hatred or selfishness. And it goes back to the second best book. <laughs> and actually even Lewis's comment about the abolition of slavery, that this being a movement, there is a wondering, well, is that actually also how it began? Now, Jack wraps up this section by saying that even if a particular movement born of friendship benefits society, it probably doesn't add much to survival value. Rather, he says it adds civilization value, and sometimes survival value and civilization value intersect, but not always. What do you guys think he means by this? What is this civilization value? I don't know. I I think that I think that it means it gives um, it gives value to a civilization that has friends, has groups of friends, um, that has people who are interested in things outside of themselves. Um, it's not survival value. I'm not even sure how valuable it is for civilization, except a civilization that has a lot of affinity groups, a lot of friendships that makes friendship happen and thrive. Um, people go into it looking to be engaged in their interests. But friendship is not about 
how it's going to benefit society or how it's going to create romanticism or communism or abolition. Friendship is always about the object of the friendship, the real thing itself, the real talk. You know, Lewis talks about it in his diaries and we'll get in. I mentioned this because we'll get into it in one of this, his kind of sexist moments. He says, I went over and spent some time with my friend, but he would never dismiss his wife so that we could get down to the real talk. And so we just stayed on the surface level all night long, and he was disappointed that he didn't get down to the real thing. Now, we'll talk later about what happens and why that happens, but but the real thing, um, friends are always wanting to have time and and leisure to talk about the real thing. And if you listeners love Lewis and then have tried to talk about Lewis with people who don't engage in that interest, you know, you're going to quickly find that, you know, you're, you're leaving some people out. If you find somebody else who likes Lewis like you do, you're going to be looking for privacy to go ahead and talk about the real thing. And so I think that may be at least something of what he's thinking about. Hmm. I think that's a really good example. It's a richer life. And uh, related to the trying to find some privacy, there's also a flip side to it. Because every Independence Day, I post a picture of this guy looking sad, sitting on a swing with the caption, me at an Independence Day party trying to find someone to talk about Lewis. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that. And uh, it, it's, that's part of why I read about the golden sessions, right? That that's the best thing in life. And Lewis is there picturing um, going on walking tours and uh, the, the book Images of His World. They have a series of pictures from the scenes of a walking tour. And Lewis and a number of friends, many of them inklings, would go walk from town to town to town and plan out their walking tour and come to an inn and talk about the, the great things. Um, they also had this fetching, fetching habit that I uh, that I have done in England at a little a little English village. Um, when they would come to a church, the church is usually always open, and they would go up to the pulpit or the ambo, and they would read a page of scripture, whatever scripture was open. Somebody would uh, would go to the church and read aloud a page of scripture, and their habit of doing that, of course, is affection growing on their friendship, which, you know, which was centered around their literary interests, their walking interests, and of course, their faith. So if we can't say that friendship is beneficial to society, can we at least say that it's beneficial to the individual? And Jack quotes a couple of proverbs to defend this idea. Firstly, from a 13th century Icelandic saga, I'm sure you've all read it, bear is the back without brother behind it but also from the Hebrew Bible. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And in response to this argument that friendship benefits the individual, Jack, unsurprisingly, makes a distinction. Because in, in our last episode, he distinguished between a friend and a companion. And now he makes another distinction. And he says that when we talk like this, although we use the word friend, what we really mean is ally. And in an earlier episode, Andrew mentioned the office, and so I thought I would mention, in this case, Season 1, Episode 4, when Dwight invites Jim to form an alliance. Dwight definitely doesn't think of Jim as a friend, but he does think that he can be useful to him as an ally. And Jim, mm. on the other hand, thinks that Dwight is just an idiot. Uh, but Jack says that friendship is not the same as allyship. But is that a fair distinction? Because most people say when they, when they hear that, well, aren't friends also allies? And Lewis says that they are. They'll, they'll give to you in need. They'll look after you when you're sick. They'll stand up for you in front of other people. And he says that if someone didn't do this, they would be a false friend. 
But he says that while these friends will do these things when needed, Jack contends that this isn't the real stuff of friendship. And he even calls them interruptions. Uh, this, this is a passage that uh, we read in the San Diego C.S. Lewis book club when we went through this book. Friendship is utterly free from affection's need to be needed. We are sorry that any gift or loan should have been necessary. And now, for heaven's sake, let's forget all about it and go back to things we really want to do or talk of together. The mark of perfect friendship is not that help will be given when the pinch comes. Of course it will. But that having been given, it makes no difference at all. It was a distraction, an anomaly. It was a horrible waste of time, always too short, that we had together. Mm-hmm. Now, Matt, do you remember the response that we got when we discussed this section in San Diego? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> Before we circle back to that, I'm not sure I, I, at first I disagreed with him off my first gut thought. Then as I read his chapter on the ally versus friendship, I agreed with that point, but I didn't actually think that meant friendship didn't have survival value. I, I feel like with the rise of psychology and understanding how much happiness and community leads to longevity of life. We can essentially prove with science people that live in isolation die. They've actually put 10 to 15 years sooner. And so happiness, joy, community, friendship actually extend life. And so I would argue that he's wrong, that friendship doesn't have survival value, but I don't think it necessarily neglects his overall point of the beauty of friendship is it can have survival value, but also can bring value to survival. I don't think it like nullifies that point. Um, but I, I feel like modern psychology and studies have somewhat disproven that. I think I agree pretty wholeheartedly with his uh, idea that an ally is something that maybe happens. Um, one, you become friends with somebody. You become friends because they care about the same questions and the deep questions. And so, of course, you love them because they care about all the deep things of the soul. And so if they come upon some financial need and, you know, and, and approach you for a loan or, you know, or whatever else, um, sure, okay, we're, we're going to help out. But we're going to help out because this, that kind of stuff is not what we really care about. It's talking about the Lord of the Rings or going hunting or making quilts or, you know, scrapbooking, whatever, whatever they may be. Um, that's the real stuff. And an ally can equally be had at work uh, in a storgy group or, you know, in boarding school, as we saw, you know, Lewis going through it. And so I think that allyship is something that that operates independently, but it's perhaps more... Uh, it's more appropriate places is within affection than it is within philia because philia is always waiting for time enough to talk about the real thing. Just to be clear, I completely agree with his point on the ally versus friendship. I just think it misses the different point that I still, I think he uses that point to argue it doesn't have survival value because the allyship does where I still think even given that point, I do think is correct. I think he's wrong overall on the fact that it doesn't have survival value. I do think there's an evolutionary need for friendship despite his comments. I actually, I agree with his allyship comments that that's separate from friendship. I think the main question that I would ask is, are you using friendship as in philia, as in the definition that he's given, or are you just talking about close acquaintances with whom there is affection? Because it could you could push back and say, everything you've said is true of affection, but not specifically philia as, he's this, as he has defined it. Yeah, I would say um, in relation to that, that would be 
partially true, but the deeper the friendship, the deeper the joy in theory that you're experiencing, the deeper the happiness, the deeper the connections you're experiencing, and the deeper those are, the the usually the healthier and longer life you have. So I'm going to push back a little just because I'm always going to try to defend Lewis to the nth degree and then, you know, see if it see if it holds and I see like if it. one can I'm do. I'm ready. It. Friendship has survival value, but if a person is well loved, um, married well, if they have a wonderful community, um, and if they experience the love of God, do you think that their survival is in more danger than if they uh, also had had friendship? So I'm not sure that friendship necessarily has survival value. And and yes, your point about psychology is well taken. And these are studies that hadn't happened in Lewis's time 60 years ago. And then in terms of civilization value, I think friendship is so rare, uh, incredibly rare. And it's the kind of thing that I want to foster in my future ministry, that uh, it's hard to get a good sample size. Um, certainly, though, I spent many years single, and certainly, Matt, I'm going to presume that besides your family, your storge love, it's your friendship love, your filia bonds that give you a lot of uh, a lot of happiness in your life. Um, because you know, please God, your your romantic relationship hasn't come yet, and we continue to pray. But I think that, um, <laughs> pray very very hard. I like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not sure. I think we can reconcile all of this together a little bit. I think the key point that I say you're getting at, Matt, is loneliness. Loneliness is a killer. Absolutely. Uh, but the question is whether or not Storge and Eros is enough to counteract that or whether Philia itself is necessary. But I might be talking about that with another guest later. So we, we, this will be brought up again, as well as at the end of the season when we can <laughs> look at the book as a whole. And one other thing too is, even if you can make the argument the other three can do it without it, that doesn't mean it necessarily doesn't have survival value still. Because in a lot of things in life, you can have one thing if you have a bunch of other stuff. You know, someone else can have one thing and not the other things, and it does provide survival value. So I don't think that nullifies the point. But I think it is important to note, because I do agree with Andrew, that someone who's just filled with all divine love doesn't need anything else, technically. Um, <laughs> or at least we're supposed to say that now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jack goes on and continues to make claims which some folks might balk at. He says, friendship like Eros is uninquisitive. Mm. <laughs> and I remember in our reading group, you 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 saying, Yeah, yeah. And all of the all of the girls looked at you with such anger. I it was wonderful. Uh <laughs> Me? Yeah. Oh no, it was wonderful. It was uh ask Kate about oh, it really? next time you're in San Diego. <laughs> but but Jack contends that when we become someone's friend, it's not because of that person's marital status, occupation, class, income, race, history. And he actually waxes quite lyrical. He says, that is the kingliness of friendship. We meet like sovereign princes of independent states abroad, on neutral ground, freed from our contexts. It is an affair of disentangled or stripped minds. Eros will have naked bodies. Friendship, naked personalities. What do you make of this, of this, of this statement? Is friendship really uninquisitive? I had read it a couple ways. Like, the uninquisitiveness initially in a relationship... But am I correct that he also uses it in like the daily inquisitiveness about life as well? Kind of uses it two ways of like, okay, what's your job? What's your status? Those kind of things. But then there's also the how's your day going and all this other stuff. I think that maybe a good example here would be um, talking about one's wife. 
And of course, Lewis was a bachelor for much of his life. And um, some of the Inklings had no idea about Minto, had never been to the house and knew nothing about it. Um, Lewis was not interested in hearing about Edith Tolkien's doings. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's this kind of, um, you know, you can become a man's friends without knowing or caring whether he is married or single or how he earns his living, right? So these are, these are um, eros and affection. And I think what he's saying is that friendship stands independent of eros and one's eros relationships and one's uh, one's story relationships. It adds very little to me if somebody shares my love of Lewis, what school they went to, or what nationality they are. And so I think that, and I think that in Lewis's experience of it, and also in the way in in British Oxonian society, one isn't really going to speak about one's relations all that much. Um, and so I think that part of that is cultural and part of that is chronological. You know, it's, it's in the age that you don't talk very much about relationships. I think the talk of relationship has, has ex expanded exponentially since Lewis's day, but it's the thing itself. Um, I don't care that much. Uh, uh, I'm grateful about Marie and Alexander, but unless Marie and Alexander limit me from having access to David. I'm not really thinking about them because I want to think about the stuff that David and I think about and argue about and fight about. Um, if Marie jumps in and is also a friend in that, in, in that, that way, all the better, you know, friendship always widens the circles. And once Alexander is old enough to read Narnia for himself, I want to have him on at, at age eight and have, you know, arguments and discussions with him. But it's uninquisitive about relationship because it doesn't want to look at friendship. Friendship always looks along. Um, and I think that's the point that he's making. I can think of a modern example where I would say this is still very true. You said some, a certain amount of this is chronological. But this is something I know nothing about since I hate sports. But I know guys who both love sports, and that is all they talk about. And I'm sure if you quiz them on any detail of their lives outside of whatever a particular football team is doing, they would draw a blank because they don't know and they don't really care because that's not what that relationship is about. And, and one bit where I will push back on Lois a little bit, I think someone's occupation can contribute to the friendship, but only insofar as it contributes to the very thing that unites the friends. So if they do as a living, say, literary criticism, well, literature is, is, is going to play a big part in their life, and therefore what they're actually doing in their careers is important and significant. I'm going to argue with you there. Oh, okay, go um, for it. Lewis is walking along with a professor, and um, it's recorded, I think, in, in Sayer's biography or somewhere. Um, and they had been in a in a seminar or something talking about, I don't know, some literary figure. And Lewis continued the discussion with his colleague, with his literary colleague. And the man said the equivalent of, good God, man, the bell has rung. Why do you want to keep talking about this? And so I think that it can. But if you look at the Inklings, um, you had a military man, you had uh, a doctor, you had a number of different professor professions. Yes, you you had a clergyman. Yes, you all. But their common interest was literary, whether they did it professionally or not. And so it can it can help. But I'd say that the man who said that, you know, good God, the bell is rung. He wasn't a friend because although they were companions, no. they didn't see the same truth. 
And that's when, exactly, they didn't care about the same kinds of questions. And so Jack would never have invited him to the Inklings or probably not invited him over to have a talk about such things. They could probably have had a drink and talked about, you know, college politics, but we know that that bored Jack. Um, so, yeah, it's always the thing itself. It's always the shoulder to shoulder, not looking at me, but looking at the thing. And I can understand how women would, how the women in your book group would have objected because I think women are more verbal and more relational mm -hmm. as a generalization. And so talking about relationship itself could be perhaps an object of friendship. Um, and because men in general use less words, present company excluded, <laughs> um, and also men are less relational, present company also <laughs> excluded, um, I think that there is a difference there. And then part of what Lewis is, part of why Lewis could make such a statement is that he met very few women who were as educated as most of his friends. And that's part of what happened, why they didn't talk about Edith Tolkien. But then Lewis foisted Joy Davidman on his group, assuming that they would love her because she loved the same kinds of literary questions. Um, so um, I think that, I think that there's that dynamic going on too. And maybe this is why I hesitated with this section too, the unacquisitiveness, because maybe I, <laughs> I am a little bit more like the female characters he's describing here. But in my friendships, I tend to not, I have a number of friends I talk to every week for like an hour and a half, almost on a call, two hours. And it's just always about our lives, our emotions, what we're struggling with. You know, I was feeling anxious about this. I almost feel like what probably he's describing as females do here. And I don't actually have a lot of people that I call about like a single topic and discuss like, oh, I always talk to this friend about this and this friend about this. It's usually like, hey, I'm struggling with this in life or sometimes it'll be theological stuff, of course. But um, yeah, maybe I'm just much more of a chick that way. <laughs> okay. I rebuke you for the use of the word chick and the the sexist generalization that goes on uh, he with that. And he, I, I disav disavow it. He meant to pronounce it chic. <laughs> Yes. Chic, yes. But let me suggest that you talk about the theological stuff happens, of course, and I'm going to suggest that maybe that's the heart of the friendship. And you have become so established with each other. I think that this kind of intimacy and this inquisitiveness happens after a while, especially in our yes. age as opposed to 60 years ago. Yes. And so I think that it develops a, an intimacy because you can trust each other about the important things in life. And so here, Lewis just seems a little bit dated. Um, but had he lived in our age, I think that he would have written this chapter very differently. I would agree with that. I do think he actually has has an opening for this later. I think he does actually crack open the door. But I agree with you. I think this was just something that he didn't experience himself from his own character, his context, and his friends. I, I genuinely thought that. I was kind of like, I don't, for as much as he had some of the most incredible friendships, I'm not sure he had some like that I did. Um, honestly, when I hear of how he described friendships, I think there's some parts that are incredibly admirable, but there's other parts where I'm like, man, he describes something that sounds kind of sad to me in some cases. And once again, I think that that's probably a cultural and a chronological yes. difference. David, I think that if you talk to your grandfather mm -hmm. about whether or not, or your great grandfather about whether or not he ever talked about his feelings to his friends, you know, he would, he would probably not laugh you out of the room because he wouldn't have been so demonstrative. Um, <laughs> But he would have probably have said, um, no, never, <laughs> no. Well, in my early days of my relationship with Marie, and she asked me how I was feeling, I told her I had two options, sleepy or hungry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and Kristen and I are flipped. And in order to find out how she's feeling, I ask her what she's thinking about. <laughs> um, and that usually produces the same thing. And when she wants to know what I'm thinking, she asks me what I'm feeling. So we've developed a larger emotional vocabulary, I think, in the last half century. Yeah, marriage will yes. do that to you. Now, what Jack has said can be very easily misinterpreted. And I think this is definitely a chapter that could be read very uncharitably. But he goes on to point out that although friends are united in a common question or vision, shoulder to shoulder, it doesn't mean that they're oblivious to each other. And in fact, it's, it's this common question or the common vision. It's the, he says it's the very medium by which love and knowledge is exchanged between the friends. And he says that even the very fact that we focused on this, this third thing that's between us rather than the man himself, we actually get to know him better. By focusing on this other thing, he says, you'll not find the warrior, the poet, the philosopher, or the Christian by staring in his eyes as if he were your mistress. Let a fight beside him, read with him, argue with him, pray with him. And, and that puts me in mind of communities of monks and nuns. I'm thinking of Sister Penelope here, one of his own friends, uh, that they live in community together side by side, even if it's a contemplative order where they barely speak to each other. They will know each other very well. And I think this is true for ministry in general. When I was back in San Diego, we did this thing called Daughters of the King, where the guys, we put on this gala evening for the girls. And I said afterwards, it really put the guys into two tiers for me, that there were some guys who were fantastic. They had initiative. They did what they said they were going to do. They thought on their feet. They really pursued uh, a really great event. And there were other guys who didn't do what they say, didn't turn up, were late, went and wandered off and tried chatting up a girl rather than, you know, bringing her her dinner. And I think that is, a, that is a real truth that has been very true for me throughout my life. The people that I value are usually people that I have done things with. And it's through doing things shoulder to shoulder that I see their true value. I think there's an excellent example of this in Lewis's book, uh, The Latin Letters of C.S. Lewis. So um, St. Giovanni of Calabria wrote him a letter in Latin because he didn't. He knew Lewis was a humane and civilized man and an educated <laughs> man, and he didn't know if Lewis had Italian, but he knew that Lewis would have had Latin. And so he wrote him in Latin, and Lewis answered in Latin. And there's this published series of these letters. And they're talking about theological things. They're talking about the unification and the divide between the Protestant and the Catholic churches. They're they're, they become friends, but not very long into it, Lewis begins feeling safe because not only is the man a friend, but he's also a priest and he confesses things to him or he talks about his feelings. And there's this beautiful passage in Latin where he says, please pray for me. My most beloved wife um, has died and I must now half manned pilgrim through this veil of tears alone. Mm. And, so, and also with Sister Penelope, they start out with literary and theological interests but then their friendship develops, and I think that there's a safety in the ordained minister that Lewis is more vulnerable emotionally in his letters to these religious than he is anywhere else. And so I think the two can can happen even in Lewis's life. Yeah. And, and David, when you were describing that side by side, the thing I was thinking in my own life was side by side fighting the battle of life, honestly, the good fight every single day, getting up, uh, being excited going on a vision, uh, a mission, going for truth, all that stuff. And so the people that are closest to me are the ones I've done that with, the ones I've had the calls in my darkest moments, the ones I've celebrated in my highest moments. And so, yes, I, I completely agree. Those are the how you, you test the friendships and you find out who's there for you. 
And I don't think you would have had those calls unless you had the commonality of theology, of living your lives together, of trying to do the same thing in common. You describe your struggles that he describes his struggles, and you find some commonalities, and there's that what you too moment. Mm. And that's where intimacy develops, once you have realized that your centers are in the same place, um, and then you know that you can call them. And fun fact, the Latin letters of Lewis, I think was the first gift I ever gave Matt. Yes, ah. I have that. When you were describing Andrew, I was going to bring that up. That sounds That's vaguely wonderful. familiar. I love the uh, the, the <laughs> they, facing I page translation. What's that? <laughs> I did read it, David. <laughs> Martin Moynihan. The Latin is actually really good. Um, the translation is great, and you can see Lewis's uh, composition. Uh, going on. So that's that's fun if you have taken any high school Latin and want to read Lewis in the original and not in English. <laughs> in the next section, Jack talks about how good friendship fosters humility. And we'll talk about the perversions of this next time. But I do want to take a few minutes to look at what he says here. Because he begins by saying that the perfect friendship fosters an appreciative love so great that each person in the circle of friends is secretly humbled. He says sometimes he wonders what he is doing there among his betters. He is lucky beyond desert to be in such company. And he describes those times when each person is bringing out the best in the others as the golden sessions. And that was that extended quotation that Andrew read for us at the beginning. And it's really clear. Barely long enough. <laughs> and it's really clear that he treasures those moments. And I actually skipped over this quotation earlier, but I think now is probably a good time to insert it. Friendship is unnecessary. That's what he said earlier like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that scene in um, Dead Poet Society, you know, where he talks about medicine, law, you know, business. These are all good things and worthy of sustained life, but sustaining life, but lo love, poetry, these are the things we stay alive for, right? <laughs> And in a future common room, Andrew and I are going to try and convince Matt that he needs to appreciate and love poetry. Because, Andrew, why did man develop language? It's not to communicate. To woo women. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is Another been, line from This uh, has been my problem my whole life. I love the Have Dead Poets Society. Have you seen Dead Society, Matt? Oh, yeah. Many times. Okay. All right. Probably one of my top five movies. Okay. Good choice. Good choice. Now, being unwilling to back away from controversial topics, Lewis now addresses the subject of friendship between the sexes. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of today's episode examining. It's the age-old question that we hear asked in movies such as When Harry Met Sally. Can men and women be friends? And Jack begins by reiterating what he said in part one of this chapter. He says that in most societies, men are friends with men, women are friends with women. And the sexes meet in affection and in eros, but not in philia. And he explains why. And it's because men and women typically haven't had the companionship of common activities. This is the matrix of friendship that he spoke about earlier. And he says, since it's not present for men and women, they therefore can't really be friends. He says, where men are educated and women not, where one sex works and the other is idle, or where they do totally different work, they will usually have nothing to be friends about. How do you guys react to this? There's so many nuances to this to, <laughs> to be able to answer it. Can men and women be friends? I mean, my short answer would be yes, 
but can they be best friends is different than just good friends or friends. You know, there's different levels of friendship. If you are best friends and you're talking all the time and you're a person you can fight everything in, that seems pretty hard for me that that's not going to turn into arrows. Uh, but do I have some female friends in my life that I talk to from time to time and I love catching up with and, and bouncing ideas off of? Yes. Um, are they the, 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 the best friend of all time? No. Um, so I guess it depends on the, the level and depth of friendship. So um, sometimes we play this fun game where I uh, challenge somebody to name Lewis's best friend. And there are six candidates. Warney, Barfield, Tolkien, um, who else? Greaves. Uh, Greaves, sure. Charles Williams, maybe. Um, but then Joy Davidman. And this is what he says about her in A Grief Observed. What was Helen not to me? She was my daughter and my mother. So there's Storgi. My pupil, my teacher, Storgi again. My subject and my sovereign, Storgi again. Always holding all these in solution, my trusty comrade. That's a military term, right? So that's a male uh, male term hearkening back to his time in the war. Friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man friend, and I have had good ones, has ever been to me perhaps more. If we had never fallen in love, we should have nonetheless been always together and created a scandal. So that's just, that's one of the, that's one of the, um, the things that she did for him. And this, it's kind of overwhelmingly, um, masculine, um, in some of how he's describing her. And he also says how many bubble, oh, let's see. Her mind was lithe and quick and muscular as a leopard. Passion, tenderness, and pain were all equally unable to disarm it. It scented the first whiff of cant or slush, then sprang and knocked you over before you knew what was happening. How many bubbles of mine she pricked. I soon learned not to talk rot to her unless I did it for the sheer pleasure of being exposed and laughed at. And so this is that kind of competitive thing. And Lewis talks about how finding an opponent is like finding a friend. And so I think that they were best friends. Is Helen another name for Joy? Yeah. It's Joy that was Helen her given. David. That was her given okay. first name. So, Helen so, Joy. So I guess that, I mean, so I guess we got to clarify two things. So I think your wife ends up becoming your best friend. So if, if you, is that's what you mean by absolutely. But do I think someone I would could be say best not friends and not have, not have, well, you know, let me say so. Could you be best friends with a female to that degree and not lead to the arrows? At least one of them. Like, can two people be that best friends that he just described with Joy and neither of them feel the arrows? That I'm not convinced would happen. L Lewis talks about that, right? When the two people who thus, um, uh, who thus describe they are on the same secret road this friendship, we love the same things. Yep. When the two people who discover they are on the same secret road are of different sexes, the friendship which arises between them will very easily pass, may pass in the first half hour into erotic love. Indeed, unless they are physically repulsive to each other or unless they are both already loved elsewhere, it is almost certain to do so sooner or later. I and conversely, erotic love may lead to friendship between lovers. I agree with him in that sentence. Um, it's kind of what my point is. But the only thing I'd say is I, I, I would be careful if I was in love, if I was married and then developed that with another woman, I probably wouldn't do it. Sure, but I think you're sort of 
blurring categories a little bit by talking about best friend because really that's that's not just philia yes. that's something sort of beyond that i mean lewis definitely had close female friends he also had uh ruth pitter sister penelope dorothy Sayers. dorothy says there are lots of women with whom he was very close but I think as soon as we use the term best friend, we actually mean something more than simply that we have this common interest that binds us together. There, it it yes. connotates a whole bunch of other things that are with it. Um, yes, which is more, that's why I started with like more the level of friendship. Mm. So when I talk about this, I suggest that when married couples take up a separate interest that the, that neither of them shared. Maybe it's skydiving or antique cars or something. When two, when a married couple develop an outside interest that they both love that they didn't necessarily love before, what they're doing is adding philia to arrows. And I think that if you want to be friends with your wife um, or with your with your spouse, I, I think you have to do that along the way. Now, before we move on, I do want to point out something that people they they read the chapter and they don't pay attention. Jack is saying that there's nothing intrinsic in either sex that stops them being friends. He says where the professions are shared, where the education is shared, men and women can be companions and therefore friends. And as we read earlier in the chapter, some people think that friendship is just disguised eros. And Lewis rejects it when it referred to same-sex relationships, and now he rejects it equally when it comes to uh, opposite genders. Now, he does concede that very often one party mistakes friendship for Eros, and that's painful and embarrassing, um, and that what begins as friendship can turn into Eros and vice versa. But the very fact that we can talk about friendship becoming Eros and vice versa shows that they're two separate things. And Lewis was writing in a period of time after two world wars the suffragette movement, there had been a converging of the worlds of men and women, such that it increasingly put them in each other's orbits, but not with complete uniformity. And that's why he says the necessary common ground, the matrix, exists between the sexes in some groups, but not others. And he repeats this idea that education is particularly important. And he says that uh, where men have advanced education, the women are to them as children to adults. Which sounds incredibly insulting, except that he then goes on and says that in areas where the men earn lots of money so the women have time to develop uh, culture and education, um, in such places, the men appear among the women as barbarians among civilized people. So he's equal, equally bashing. <laughs> yeah, I, and he, I don't think he's bashing at all. I think he's, I think he's defining and describing. David, what did you... Yeah, you think? I, I think he, he's just drawing some clear distinctions. And people... I would agree the emphasis... Lewis is writing as a man, so he's going to be writing things as how he experiences it. And so women in this chapter do come off quite often as not that great. But he's only writing about what he knows. And I'm, I, I would love to see a woman write the flip side of this uh, in, in more detail than Lewis gives us. And remember that he's writing this while married to Joy Davidman, mm -hmm. right? He develops these lectures in 58. And so he has now experienced arrows turning into friendship or friendship turning into arrows. And in fact, what you have with her, is, with them is the kind of the very opposite. So Joy, I think, fell in love with him before they were really close friends. And Lewis was really close friends with her before he fell in love. And it's parallel to the, to the Bardia and Orwell. Um, they had friendship when they... When they sell her, take a drink, y'all. It's till we have faces. Oh, sorry, um, sorry. I've already finished mine, Andrew. 
they had sword fighting together, which was a common interest and friendship. And when Bardia says, oh, it's a pity that you're not a man, and it cuts her to the quick, it's because he's loving her and wish with Philia, and she's loving him with hidden arrows. By saying, I wish that you were a man, what he's saying is, I wish I could share more of the things that I, that I love with you. Um, and she takes it absolutely the wrong way, because pity poor Orwell. <laughs> And as we wrap up this portion of the chapter, uh, Lewis talks about the situation where that matrix of friendship isn't present, but there are attempts to force friendship regardless. And he gives the example of the cultivated woman who is always dragging her husband to concerts, encouraging him in civilized pursuits, or inviting similarly refined people to dinner. And in a hilarious bit of cynicism, Lewis says that this doesn't do too much damage. Quote, the middle-aged male has great powers of passive resistance and of indulgence. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the couple in The Great Divorce, doesn't it? It does. The controlling wife. And I, I would actually yeah. point to that because although Lewis says it doesn't do too much damage, I think we should remember how much that husband suffered at the hands of his wife. Yeah. No, absolutely. But what Jack thinks is much more problematic is the situation when it's around the other way. And this is the bit that... Uh, it's got bad, it sounds bad at times. The, the optics aren't great, but I do defend the essential idea that he's trying to communicate here. He thinks it's really problematic when the men are civilized and the women are not, and simply refuse to recognize the fact. And let me jump in and say, define and describe. So what he means by civilized is not having good manners, but knowing Greek and Latin. Hmm. And it was only during Lewis's own lifetime that Oxford was integrated. That, and by integrated, they didn't have men and women together. They just started a woman's college, right? And so, but he, he had very, very little experience with anybody even half, the, half, the, half as educated as he was with the women. Now everybody, both genders go to, you know, receive that education. But that was almost unheard of a century ago. Mm. And he says that as a result of all of this, male-only events aren't allowed. He says, because of this sense of egalitarianism, they must always be co-ed. And he says that this causes a problem when the women who subsist on a diet of trashy magazines try and develop philia with men who want to talk about Greek and Latin texts. Uh, and again, I want to emphasize the problem here isn't anything intrinsic to the sex. It's much more about the education. But the result of this, he says that if the men are ruthless, the, the woman who's trying to come into this circle of men, she's just going to be bored out of her mind because they're going to be talking about stuff that means nothing to her. But if they're well-bred... If they're gentlemen, they will try and bring her into the conversation. But Jack is rather cynical. He says that eventually their efforts are going to fail and they will just lower the conversation just to be gossip and anecdotes and jokes. And this seems to be what he really objects to. Her presence has thus destroyed the very thing she was brought in to share. She can never really enter the circle because the circle ceases to be itself when she enters it. And Jack thinks that this is the reason that friendship is both rare and disparaged these days. Well, and you see, in fact, the very, the very, op the very flip side happen as well. If women are sitting around talking about the things that concern them, you know, um, my sisters-in-law are, you know, pregnant or have had babies, and if I were to enter into the room while they are talking about this thing about which they have interest and experience, 
and try to play a part in the conversation, they would either be polite or they'd freeze me out or they'd invite me to leave. And properly so, because they have this common experience and they think that these questions and experiences, you know, have, have real, real value. And it would be rude of me to try to enter in. Now, that's just one example. It could be a group of women scientists who not only are talking about science, but what it's like to be a woman scientist. I wouldn't want to enter that room simply out of politeness. I wouldn't want them to feel obligated to spoil the to change the conversation. And that's the thing about friendship. Friendship is essentially self-forgetful. I don't think about myself. I don't think about the other. I just think about the thing. And I love my friend because he brings out something that I wouldn't have ever thought about before, about the thing. And the friend becomes a way to know the thing better. And I mean, that's part of why I love this chapter almost more than anything else in Lewis. When you and your friends get together, if somebody came along who didn't share your common interests or your common experience, if I came along on one of your guys' trips, um, I'm sure that you all would be polite and that we'd find points of contact. But it wouldn't take many hours in the car or sitting around in the pub before I was just kind of laughing at cultural references that I didn't really know. So it doesn't even have to be gender. It can be experience and whatever. I think that I would probably not fit in very well with your friends, except so insofar as we share the same interests. Do you think that's the case? Yes. I would definitely say that's true if you wanted to talk finance. <laughs> Absolutely. When I hear you talk about finance stuff, I honestly glaze over slightly and just wait until there's a break in the conversation and then wake back up. <laughs> you don't want to hear me talk about machine learning or AI and... The, no, no that, that bit, that, see, see, that's 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 perfect. That bit I'm interested in. Start talking about financial instruments. Bored again immediately. Yeah, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> well, and I love this notion in this chapter that uh, one feels like he's amongst his betters. I mean, I just I was flabbergasted that you all would. I was grateful that you invited me on in season three, flabbergasted that you would accept my request to be co-host last season and, you know, really wondered after the season if maybe you all would come back and go, ah, you know, thanks a lot, but no thanks. <laughs> you know, and so I think that in some ways I, I absolutely feel in, in the company of my betters and humbled to be here. The feeling is mutual, Andrew. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> well, to try and put a bow on this, uh, I think it's unfortunate that Lewis belabors the point about interfering women. Uh, but I still think the logic that he's applying is, isn't sexist and what he's saying is actually true. Many people ask the question, can men and women be friends? And really what the question that Lewis is asking here, because he says, yes, they can be friends. The question he's asking is, can people who do not share similar interests or education be friends? And to this, at least to me, he seems to say no. But he does emphasize the fact that there can still be Storge, there can still be Eros, there can still be these other great loves, but this particular love just isn't an option without certain prerequisites. And I just wanted to close by pointing everyone to a 20-minute video put together by Dr. Love himself, Dr. Jason Lepoyave. It's called Misreading C.S. Lewis on Friendship, The Challenges of Sexism, Secrecy, and Snobbery. And I think it's, it's a really great video to watch uh, alongside reading this chapter, and I'm sure we'll talk about it when Dr. Love comes on the show later this season. And with that, I think I hear last call, don't I? Yes, I hear the last call here at the Turf Tavern. Yes. This is where we've been hanging out today. Ooh, that, that oh. was right by me in New College. And in the vein of friendship, don't they say friendships keep friends in check? And so 
Andrew, I have to say thank you for calling out my poor choice of words with the chick comment <laughs> before we sign off. And speaking about keeping people in order in a final piece of Batesian rigor, we'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters, including our top tier supporters. Anonymous, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. Well, please join us next time. When we'll be going further up. In further in. To Betsy and rigidity and all its good blessings and to our friendship. Cheers. And to mixing Matt's horrible whiskey with an awful lot of Coke. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers.